verses 1 through 4. And that message, that warning that the author of Hebrews wanted us to know was, do not neglect your salvation. Do not let your life pass on by the harbor of salvation. Don't miss that opportunity to anchor your soul to that harbor of salvation. Don't do it. The second warning is all about failing to enter his rest. This is quite a confusing passage for many because there are many different types of rest that are talked about in the Bible. Several are actually talked about here in this passage. And so sorting that all out requires a little bit of diligence on our part, which is why we slowed down a little bit, took a few verses at a time to make sure we really understand what is the author warning us about this second time. It's different from the first time. This is about entering his rest. So to make his point, the author of Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament, just like he's done in the previous chapters, and he goes to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7, is a worship psalm. But then in verses 8 through 11, it really recalls back to when Israel was disobedient, both in the Exodus wanderings and specifically in uh, Numbers 14, they're out in the desert, and they are, when they were getting ready to go into the promised land. So, uh, and he looks deeply here at the reasons why, they, why the Israelites failed to enter into the promised land. What was it that occurred? I mean, they'd, they, God had redeemed them out of Egypt. They had been in bondage for over 400 years. What then was the problem? Why were they not able to get in? And the reasons were, the text tells us, they were disobedient. They did not believe God's promises, and they hardened their hearts against him. When God called, they hardened their hearts. They didn't believe what God said was true, and because of that, they were not able to enter into the promised land. They wandered for 40 years in the desert, if you remember that, because of their unbelief. An entire generation, all but two, Joshua and Caleb, died in that desert. So, this is a warning against an unbelieving, what the Bible calls an evil, unbelieving, disobedient heart. How do you like that? Evil, unbelieving, disobedient heart. And to listen, and to the, this is a warning to, it was a warning to them. It was a warning to those in Psalm 95, when, in David's time. It's a warning to the author of Hebrews, is making to the congregation and this little church in Hebrews. And guess what? It's a warning to us today. It applies equally the same way. Now, I told you last time that there are three things the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that these professing believers, these are those who have said that they are that they believe in Christ. However, many of them are falling away. Many of them are falling back and returning to Judaism. Why? Because they're under intense persecution. So you have to keep that in the context of mind. So the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that these professing believers in the church of Hebrews, up to and including today, understand this from this second warning passage. They want you, he wants you to know what this rest is that God was talking about. He wants you to know what you need to do to enter this rest, the specific rest that he's talking about. And thirdly, he wants you to know how you enter into this rest. How do you do it? So that's the background here. We're going to go back and pick up a little bit from verse 1 and remind what we've been through because you need that to finish off the last six verses here. We won't get that far. Don't worry. 
but you'll need this context. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for this day. I thank you, Lord, for all of these dear saints who have come here today, Lord, carved out this time in their busy lives and recognize this is a time to set aside and worship to you. They've made that a priority in their life, Lord, and I know that's pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Now, Lord, just because we're here, that's half the battle. The other part of Lord is, of course, that we give you our undue attention, Lord, that we focus in on the truth of your word, Lord, that we not only hear your word, but do your word. We apply it to our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory. That we're not just learning for the sake of knowledge so we can astound our friends with how much we know about the Bible, but instead, Lord, that we would apply it to our lives and walk in a way that's worthy of our calling, that we would be a light in the midst of the darkness around us, that others would see your light shining through us in the way that we live our lives. But step one, Lord, is that we're here. We're getting recharged for the week. We're getting, Lord, filled again with the truth of your word. So give us, Lord, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that's open to your wonderful truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's walk through where we are up to this point. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. This is the second half of this warning passage. Notice it says, therefore, that's the very first word. We always ask ourselves, what? What's the therefore? Therefore, that takes us back to all that he was talking about in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. All of that previous warning he has been talking about. Twice in that passage, he warned them about against having a disobedient, unbelieving heart. And remember, again, I told you this context. These are professing Jewish believers who are tempted to fall away. They've made a profession that they have indeed surrendered their life to Christ, but now the persecution gets ramped up a little bit. They are falling away. They are apostatizing. Okay? They are falling away. That's what that word means. And so twice in this passage, he has encouraged them, encouraged them to hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to that thing you said you believed in. Don't let it slip away just because, the, just because you're facing some adversity in your life. Cling to him. And he reminds them that those who do truly remain are the ones who are partakers of Christ. They are the ones. So again, I remind you that this generation that he's speaking to in Psalm 95 had seen God move in more powerful ways than any other generation had before them or since. I mean, they had seen the physical manifestation of God's presence before their very eyes. And yet, here they are. First little bit of trial, first little bit of adversity, right? Oh, we can't eat. We were better off with the stew pots in Egypt. Oh, 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 there's no water for us. God says, all this grumbling and mumbling and complaining, what is that indicative? It's indicative that you do not believe in the promises I made to you. All that complaining, all of that grumbling, all that mumbling means that you truly don't trust me. You truly do not believe what I told you is true, or you wouldn't be complaining. God was angry for them. 
or with them, I should say, for they did not know his ways, the text tells us, and they went astray in their hearts. What does that mean? God, I hear you, but I think I got a better plan. I kind of like my plan better than your plan because in my plan, I still get to keep doing the things I like to do. Your plan means I have to abandon those things, quit trying to do it on my own, and just simply trust you. Boy, that's a lot scarier to me than me having all control over all things, so I think I'll stick with my plan. God says that's an evil, disobedient, unbelieving heart because you don't trust me. You say you trust me. You've kind of said the words. You're with the group that says they trust me. But yet, when push comes to shove and you get a little adversity in your life, you abandon me and take the reins yourself. And when you do that, that's indicative of the fact that you really don't trust me. You really don't believe in me, do you? Because if you did, you would cease striving to do that. They were certainly part of Israel, but that doesn't mean that they all believed God and his promises. And in my view, those in the Exodus rebellion and the wilderness wanderings are very similar to these professing believers in the book of Hebrews, really suffering from the same symptoms. They were part of the people of God. They looked like they all belonged, and yet their hearts were far away from God, weren't they? Their hearts were truly far away. The author of Hebrews is describing someone who needs to respond to the promises of God, which is why he says, therefore, based upon all those that did not enter his rest because of unbelief, look at verse 1. He says, let us fear. He said, hey, you're, you say you're part of the group, but if you're part of that group that is a professing believer and not a true believer, you should be fearful. So the kind of fear described here, though, is the fear of an unbeliever. The fear of a believer is reverential fear. The fear here he's talking about is the fear of unbelief. What should these professing believers be afraid of? The text tells us they should be afraid that because his promised rest still remains, they may yet still miss it again. They might still miss it. Here it is. It's available to them today, and yet, they might miss it again. What would cause them to miss it? The end of chapter 3 tells us they could not enter his rest. Why? Because of unbelief. Unbelief. Well, if they had seen God moving on their, on their behalf, which they had, and they had seen that all he had promised he had delivered to them, which they had, what was the cause of their unbelief? Well, we see that in verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. So the first thing the author does after warning them in verse 1 about missing the opportunity to enter his rest is to point out that just like them, the previous generation heard the good news also. What was this good news that they heard about? It was the good news, the good news message about the ability to be able to enter his rest. That's the context here. This is the context of the entire warning passage, enter in his rest. So in verse 2, the author points to the physical rest that God was uh, providing for them, right, for the wilderness generation, the physical rest from their wanderings, the physical rest from protection from their enemies, all of that that he was offering them as a picture, an image, if you will, 
of the rest that remains today. It's a different kind of rest, but it, the, what, the physical rest that he was offering them was like an image of what is available today. He states, even though they heard the good news, God's rest was available, they did not enter his rest. Why not? Unbelief. What caused that unbelief? Well, that's in the second part of verse 2. Although they heard the good news, it did not profit, the, profit them. Why? Because they did not unite by faith in those who heard. They did not believe, even though they heard that God's rest was available. They did not believe it. That means they heard all they needed to know to be able to enter God's rest, but because they did not unite their faith with the hearing of this good news, they did not believe. And because they did not believe, it was no profit to them, no gain whatsoever. Isn't that exactly what happens in Numbers 14? When we look at Psalm 95, right, which was pointing to Numbers 14, remember? And I'm paraphrasing here. God said again, here you go. Here's the promised land that I've been telling you about. Here's the promised land. It's right there beyond this mountain, right there. You can stand up on the mountain and look. There it is, just like I said. Now go and see if all that I promised you is true. Go out there. That is indeed, that is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey that is fruitful and wonderful. The land I promised you is good. So the 12 spies were sent and 10 came back and said what? They're too big. There's too many of them. I think John MacArthur calls it the grasshopper complex. They had a grasshopper complex. God says, have I not promised you that you will be in my rest? Have I not promised to take care of you? Have I not promised to protect you? But they did not believe, did they? And so the author of Hebrews is saying to these professing believers, just like those that did not enter into the, his physical rest in the promised land because of their lack of faith in God and his promises, you too can fail to enter his spiritual rest if you do not unite your faith found with the good news found in the gospel of Christ. He's trying to bring those together. Then in verse 3, he gives a positive and a negative. The positive, those that believe today, those that unite their faith to the good news that God is offering, profit immensely because they're able to enter into his rest. The negative, those who do not believe today, those who do not unite their faith to the good news, will not profit, for they will not be given access to his rest. And just like the Israelites were not able to enter his physical rest because of their unbelief, those professing believers in the book of Hebrews will not be able to enter his spiritual rest because of their unbelief. And so the author of Hebrews then wants to make a very important point in verse 4 about God's spiritual rest. In verse 4, he says, For uh, he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God... I'm sorry, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Did you notice right before verse 4 that little phrase in there? Although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. you see that? You know, when you're reading that, that's one of those things that's like, well, what does that got to do with anything? I thought he was just talking about enter his rest, enter his rest. Now he's talking about works. Why does he do that? Well, 
It's really setting up for verse 4. See, in verse 4, the reason the Israelites did not enter his rest was not because it wasn't available. It was available. The end of verse 3 tells us his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And to prove it, he cites Genesis 2.2. Remember, we looked at that before, right? Genesis 2.2, which talks about God created, right? And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Was it because he was tired? Worn out? I mean, it's a lot to create the whole universe, eh? You know, I have a hard time just getting up and making my bed in the morning. Be tough. You know, I can't imagine making all that they're thinking out of nothing. No, this was done as an example for man. One in which he was to model after God's own creation. Later, it became part of the law. And the explanation that God provided was rooted in this creation account from Genesis. And then in Genesis 2, 3, that verse tells us that God sanctified it. He set it apart. He said, make this a holy day because he rested in it. Later, it was set aside for worship in the Mosaic law. But this day of physical rest and worship was always for man, not for God. God doesn't get tired like you and I do. Okay? He doesn't get exhausted. He doesn't get physically worn out. God has unlimited power. Okay? Unlimited. There's never a time when he has less power. He's trying to demonstrate that God's rest has always been available to those in every generation that united their faith with belief in God and his promises. That's what he's trying to say here. So to prove that, he goes all the way back to creation. He's saying, listen, from the very beginning, God's rest in creation was pointing to the spiritual rest that can be found by God in God through faith. This is God's rest. And to emphasize the point, he's going to show us how it's available in four different time periods. Look at verse 5. Again, he says, And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So once again, he repeats Psalm 95, which would have been what the Israelites heard in David's reign. So now the author is saying, Listen, this rest was available. This rest that I'm kind of talking that's rest that I'm talking about, this spiritual rest, guess what? It was available after God finished creating. It was available from the seventh day of creation on. Guess what? It was still available in David's time. It was also available to those Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. It was available again to those who heard it in David's time. And then verse 3 tells us it's still available to those that were professing believers in the book of Hebrews. And it's available to us today. So then in verse 6, he kind of summarizes it all. He says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Since God's rest is still available today to enter into it, just like it was since creation, and just like before this message, this good news has been evangelized since creation. It has been made available to man from the garden, from the exodus, during David's reign, during the first century in the book of Hebrews, and today. This rest that he's talking about is different. And this offer is only profitable to those who unite the good news with faith. Faith in what? Faith is the key. Faith in God and his promises. It was by faith that the Israelites could have entered the promised land and enjoyed God's rest if they would have only believed what God had said to them.
if they would have only believed God's promises. It was by faith that God's rest was still available in David's reign. It was by faith that it was available to the professing believers in Hebrews. And in each case, throughout human history, only those who heard the gospel, only those who heard the good news and then united with their faith were the ones who were able to enter the rest. Anybody else who heard it but didn't unite it with faith did not enter into his rest. As a matter of fact, they're called what? Disobedient. Why are they disobedient? Because they refused to believe God and chose instead to go astray in their own hearts. And God says, that's disobedient. I think I told you last week, right? The gospel is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Repent. Believe. Confess. Those are commands. Those are imperatives. They're not suggestions. They did not know his ways because they decided their own path was far better. And the disobedience here is not simply that they didn't accomplish some act that was required of them. The disobedience is tied to their unbelief. In other words, they disobeyed God's promise of hope and rest through unbelief because the commandment was, trust me, have faith in me, I will deliver you. And they disobeyed God's command and said, I won't believe. I'll say I believe so I get to hang out with you folks because it looks like God's doing something here and I'd like to be part of that group. And just in case these things are true, I'd really like to reap the benefits of that. But I really haven't totally surrendered. I still think my way is better for me which is why the author of Hebrews then closes out that little section of verse 7 with that little phrase, notice that, through David after so long a time. Now, why does he mention David again? He's pointed out that the Exodus events, which when God's declaration was originally made, and again at a later time through David, God's promise remained valid. Say, listen, it's still, it's still there. And that's why God could specify that it required people's response Today, today is the day to respond in faith to the good news. Do not harden your hearts like so many have done from creation through today. Do not harden your hearts when you hear his voice. Because God's gracious offer to enter his rest, it still remains today. And while it still remains today, believe. Do not harden your hearts. Believe. So to demonstrate that, the author of Hebrews now moves to another important figure in verse 8. This is where we picked up from last time. Now remember, the author has already demonstrated the rest that Moses was to provide did not occur, did it? They never made it into the promised land, right? Most of them die because of unbelief. So you can hear that the professing believers, you can, it's almost like the author of Hebrews here anticipates what they're thinking. Because why he's telling them that, they're thinking this. Yeah, okay, I hear you. I hear you. Moses didn't make it. Well, what about Joshua? Joshua made it. Ha! There you go. Your offer is invalid. Doesn't make sense. Joshua made it in. Sure, you picked Moses, but Joshua didn't make it in. I mean, Joshua made it in. He made it into the promised land, didn't he? You're pointing at Moses saying he didn't make it in, but what about Joshua? He did make it in. So clearly the rest you're talking about was accomplished already. Verse 8. The author says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Listen, 
Joshua did indeed lead the Israelites into the promised land. Another generation, right? Just as God had promised them. End of story, right? The author of Hebrews says, but if that's true, then why does God speak about entering his rest on another day? Hey, if it's all done, if it's all accomplished, why is he still talking about a rest that still remains? If that was it, why is it offered again and again and again? What's the point? Specifically, if that promise is already fulfilled, then why does God speak through David a long time after the wilderness wanderings? A long time after Joshua. What the author of Hebrews is driving at is even after they entered the promised land, which was arduous to say the least, and they finally get in there, what happened? They still did not complete the conquest as God had told them to do. I mean, you know, you need only walk with us on, on the, in the book of Judges on the second and third Sunday nights of the month to see the continuing disastrous results of their disobedience. Even after they entered the promised land, this next generation was just as disobedient as the previous one. Which means they still did not find the rest they were looking for spiritually, did they? Because they were, they were worshiping idols, they were constantly under oppression, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they still didn't reach the spiritual rest. Yes, they received a little bit of rest from their enemies. They received the rest from not wandering around the desert another 40 years. But guess what? They still had not obtained the rest that God is offering here, which was a different kind of rest. Yes, they received the rest physically from their wanderings, but there was still yet another rest that remained. What rest is that? Verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So notice the first word there in verse 9. You might have so or so then. And that really is suggesting that, hey, what I'm about to say, based on what I just told you in, in the previous verse, is indisputable. Saying, listen, listen up. So then, there remains a rest that's still available. And this rest is different from the rest that was obtained when Joshua, Joshua and the Israelites entered Canaan. This is a different rest. And the author explains this rest, and he calls it a Sabbath rest. Now, the word that's used here for Sabbath rest is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Actually, it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. Nowhere else. It's only found a couple times outside of the Bible. It's not the regular Greek word for rest, which is sabbaton. It is a new word called sabbatismos. That word carries with it this idea of focusing on the experiencing the experience of sabbathing. Now, it got really complicated here. I actually had to call my English expert over there to figure out what the heck a verbal noun is. But let me tell you this. After I got done wrestling with that for a couple of days, he is. Uh, some of the commentators think that the author of Hebrews coined this new word himself. Now, why would the author of Hebrews not just use the regular word for Sabbath that's used everywhere else? Matter of fact, he's going to go back to the regular word in the next verse. Why here? What is he trying to tell us? What is God trying to tell us through the author of Hebrews by coining this new word? He's, what is it that he's trying to explain to us that's so important he needed to come up with a new word to try and explain it? 
it's my view here that the author is trying to point us to the spiritual aspect of his rest. It's a different rest that he's been talking about. The kind of rest he's been talking about before is the rest of ceasing from your activities. It's a rest that's even more than just setting aside the day as a holy day for the Lord. It's beyond that. It's even more than just entering the promised land and ceasing from wandering around anymore. This rest is a rest for your soul. This Sabbath rest is a rest for your soul. It is spiritual in nature, not just a physical rest from your body, but a spiritual rest for your soul. And I believe that Jesus actually gave us a glimpse of that kind of rest in his earthly ministry. And I think we can find that in Matthew chapter 11. So let's look at that, shall we? Matthew chapter 11, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's you and me, incidentally. We're the infants here. He says this. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now notice verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor, And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So here we see this tension that we often find throughout Scripture. See many times before, no one knows the Father except uh, anyone the Son wills to reveal him. That's talking about God's sovereignty. But then verse 28, he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now in the context, what kind of rest is he talking about? Is he talking about physical rest or spiritual rest? Well, the answer for us is actually here in the next verse. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for what? Your souls. This is a spiritual rest. This is a diff- it's not a physical rest. This is a spiritual rest. But notice who the rest is available to. It is to all, all who are willing to come. All who are willing to respond. There we have the human accountability side. That's the tension, right? We have God's sovereignty on one side. We've got the human accountability on the other. And who by faith believe that the yoke of Jesus is indeed gentle. And that he is indeed humble. And is a lighter burden than the burden of what they were used to. What was the burden that they were used to? The burden of the law. And all those additional requirements placed upon them by these religious leaders. Who would respond to this gracious offer from Jesus? Dr. MacArthur writes this. Only those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy 
and the weight of trying to save themselves by keeping the law. Those were the only ones. They were going to respond by faith. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, because this really kind of echoes the first beatitude, does it not? Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Those who responded to this gracious offer were those who realized they are spiritually bankrupt, that they cannot save themselves, that no matter how hard they try, no matter how many laws they try to keep, no matter how self-righteous they think they are, they're not the ones who will be able to have that rest for their soul. You know who the ones are going to take advantage of that? You know the ones who are going to believe that are the ones who believe that they cannot earn their way to salvation. Those are the ones. Because the true people of God unite faith with this gracious offer of rest for their souls from Jesus. Incidentally, notice who it is that can enter the Sabbath rest back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. Do you remember who it is there? Who is it? Who's this Sabbath rest for? Who, who gets to take advantage of it? You can find it there. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The people of God. Who are the people of God? All who have united their faith with God and his promises. Now, to demonstrate this Sabbath rest, the author provides an example of what that looks like for all who have entered his rest today. Look at this in verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, here we're kind of tying back. Remember when it said God rested from his works. So the author of Hebrews is making the point, stay with me now, that from the very beginning, God has offered this rest for his, for your soul. And the rest that God offers is still available today. And he demonstrated this to us through the imagery of resting on the seventh day after creation. It wasn't for him, it was for us. And at the very core of this Sabbath rest is that we stop trusting in our own works and we unite ourselves by faith to him. And we begin to trust in the saving work of Christ's atoning work on the cross to save us. And that rest for the soul is still available. It was available then, it's available now. And it still remains today for those who hear the good news and unite it with their faith. Now, trusting in their own works, not trusting in their own works to enter his rest, not hardening their hearts in disobedience to his gracious offer to enter their rest, but instead believing in him and his promises. Isn't that what Paul was speaking about in Romans chapter 4, verse 5? Remember when he said this? I'll just read it for you. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Isn't that what Paul's talking about here? It's the same thing the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's a rest 
That means we cease striving to enter his rest by our own works and rest solely in Christ's finished work on the cross. It's a rest that should give us great joy as we live out that truth every day. Do you live every day of your life as a believer with the assurance that you are united with Christ? Do you have that kind of rest? It's not a rest you can manufacture yourself. It's not a rest you can earn by any way yourself. It has nothing to do with ever whatever self-righteous standard you have set for yourself. It has nothing to do with that. Matter of fact, the harder you try to work to earn this rest, the farther you are away from his rest. Whatever rest you think you're creating is not God's rest. And it wasn't modeled in the Sabbath rest. It's a rest that should give us great joy. And in one sense, beloved, as true believers, we live out this rest by faith, don't we? Every day, we live by the faith of this assurance that we have, that we have this rest, and it is eternal, and nothing can take that away from us. But that's not just the end of the good news. You see, the good news about entering his rest, this rest for our souls, not only has a today aspect, it also has an eternal aspect as well, doesn't it? Because there's a heavenly rest that's part of his rest, isn't there? There's an eternal rest that's part of this rest that God promises to all who unite their faith with the good news. And there's more to this rest that God offers to us, but we won't fully realize all those benefits until we're on that side of glory. But for all who have truly trusted Christ as their Lord and believe by faith that he is who he says he is and has done what he has said he has done. In other words, you believe in him and his promises, including his rest, which you live out now every day. And you believe that that rest is secure eternally. Guess what? It also has a little mandate with it. God is pleased that you have entered his rest. Pleased that you have the assurance and you have the joy of knowing this. But there's a responsibility that comes with this as well. You see, we have to go out in that security that God has provided us in his rest. And with great power and with great love and with great meekness, we are to boldly proclaim this, proclaim this truth to every living creature. We are to let them know that today, God's rest still remains. It may not be here tomorrow. It may not be here five minutes after our service today. It may not be here a minute from now. Right now, it remains. And if they hear his voice, they should not harden their hearts, but instead they should unite that, their faith to the good news of God's gracious offer to enter his rest. It's not a physical rest. It's a spiritual rest. This is the rest. This is the rest he's talking about. We need to tell them that they can cease striving to work their way into heaven because that pathway does not exist. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot do enough good deeds. You can't build enough orphanages and hospitals. There's only one way. You need to cease striving to work your way into heaven. You need to cease striving to 
work their way into heaven by their works and instead rest in the finished work of Christ. This is the rest, the spiritual rest that God has demonstrated us from the very beginning of creation. Resting in his finished work and not our own. It is his rest that we enter, not our rest. His rest. The one who has truly entered God's rest has set aside striving in the flesh and has trusted in the work of God that God has finished in Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we will be saved. It is only Christ and Christ alone. Beloved, this rest is available for you today. It's not just a rest physically, not that we all couldn't use that from time to time, but instead it's a rest spiritually that's eternal, that never fades, that never changes. You get to enjoy it today, but there's even more benefits available to us in glory. That's God's rest. That's different from just physical rest. This is a spiritual rest that has benefits today and forever. That's what he's talking about. It's a spiritual rest for our very souls. You cannot earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. And yet this same spiritual rest has been available since creation. For whom? For all who will hear the good news and then unite their faith with the hearing of this good news. Christ says to me, to you, to all who will hear, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Won't you come? Won't you come today? If you hear that message, if you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, if you're still thinking that you can earn your way into heaven, won't you truly surrender your life today to Christ? I promise you, it is the best decision you will ever make in your entire life. And eternally. Isn't it amazing that we have to make these decisions in this little blip of eternity? How long is 80 or 100 years, you know, the average lifespan? How long is, the etern- how long is 80 or 100 years in the span of eternity? The blink of an eye, the flash of a light, I, I don't know how long that is. That long. In forever time. And yet we have to make the most important decisions we ever make for all time in that blip of time. And then once you make that decision, guess what? You're going to feel like you don't have enough time. You're going to feel like I need more time. I need more time to serve him. I need more time to grow in grace and knowledge. I need more time to reach out to others. I need more time. I need more time. God graciously gives you all the time you need be able to respond to him and to be able to serve him. But this gracious offer of his rest, beloved, does not last forever. Because when your last breath leaves your body here, it's too late if you've not made that decision, as sad as that is. Or if the Lord returns, it's too late then. So think that through. It's an important decision and one you should not take lightly because it has eternal consequences. 
If you've already made that decision and you're absolutely sure of your salvation, praise God. You have entered his rest. You are indeed the people of God. And you should have great joy in the assurance of that. But if you've not, Jesus says, come to me. Quit trying to earn your way into heaven. You can't do it. But rest in me. Let's pray.